Welcome to the Darwinian Times, Survival of the Nimblest. I'm your host, Adam Chandler, CEO of Ularity, and we're super excited to have the Chief Marketing Officer of Authority Brands, Heather McLeod, straight out of Baltimore, Maryland, where I am actually originally from. So it's going to be a good conversation. Heather, thanks so much for joining us. We're stoked to have you. For the listeners that are tuning in to learn more about Authority Brands, they're actually the parent company of... 10 brands, and I'll let Heather tell you who those brands are, but one of the largest in home services. And Heather really sits atop, she's responsible for consumer and development marketing across all the different business units. And her focus is streamlining that marketing process, sharing best practices, and improving marketing program to drive business. They have close to, I think, 2,000 units. So Heather has a, a long background in home services as a proven leader and uh, a change agent, which you need to be these days, especially when you have so many different portfolio brands. So let's just kick it off and hear from Heather. Heather, love to know a little bit about if you could frame up authority brands for those that are somewhat familiar or very familiar. Tell us a little bit about the brands that you own and uh, what you do at the company. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm always excited to talk about authority brands and marketing and what we're doing. So I think, I think it will be a fun one today, especially because we can maybe throw in some Baltimore crab cake references too, as we go. Um, so authority brands actually is 10 brands all in the home service space, all franchised. And it's starting to turn into a test to see if I can remember them all in the order that they were acquired and came into the family. So the first brand was the cleaning authority followed by home watch caregivers, America's swimming pool company, mosquito squad, one hour heating and air conditioning, Benjamin Franklin plumbing, Mr. Sparky Electric, Stop Restoration, Monster Tree Service, and as of last week, Duty Calls. So a wide range of services really are kind of mantra is we want to own the home from the roof line to the property line, that anything you need to have um, or have handled in your home that we can take care of for you. And we've grown through primarily acquisition. So started off as one brand and you know now it's been, I guess, almost six years since I've been here and we're up to 10. And no signs of stopping anytime soon. So I, I anticipate a couple more in our future. When you started at the company, Heather, how many brands did you have? And how did the progression of acquisitions happen over the course of the time since you've been there? Was it a rapid pace? Yeah. So it's actually kind of, kind of interesting. I actually came to Authority Brands before Authority Brands was actually a thing. So I was working at the time for the Dwyer Group, which is now Neighborly, in Texas, which while I was there was seven brands. They had just acquired their eight also in home services. And um, I was looking for kind of just like the right opportunity to be a part of something from kind of the ground up to build something. I was really excited about that idea. And at the time I came to work for the cleaning authority, which was the first brand authority, hence that became then authority brands. And really it was kind of a slow process to start. You know, we didn't do our first acquisition until about two years and change after, after I got here. So it was the promise of we're going to do awesome stuff and we're going to grow and here's what we're going to do. But it took a little while to get us going. But then after that, they came in pretty rapid succession with HomeWatch being first. And then the next year followed with ASP and Mosquito Squad. Nine months later, Benjamin Franklin, one hour and Sparky, and then nine months after that into the rest. And then we've just finished our last one last week. So it's been pretty rapid fire since about the end of 2018. 
Fantastic. And is the idea for those learning about the multi-brand portfolio business model, is the idea to cross-pollinate across offerings and figure out efficiencies? Like, so what's this, the high-level strategy in terms of acquiring a lot of companies and sort of making them more efficient? Can you tell us a little bit about sort of that positioning and, and that vision? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a couple different kind of angles to it. So the first being the, the customer, right? So there's an obvious overlap given that in a lot of instances, the customer is a homeowner, but it's really the home that we're servicing, right? So the home is our customer in a lot of, in a lot of capacities. So really being able to capitalize on the fact that we have a really similar customer base across a lot of these brands, and there's opportunities for us to sell into existing customer bases kind of brand by brand. But then there's also kind of this angle of, you know, our brands are large at the unit level for the spaces they operate in and that um, they produce a high amount of revenue. So there's business infrastructure that comes with each of our franchisees market by market. And so we also see kind of opportunities to leverage scale by having franchisees actually own more than one of our service brands and be able to perform multiple services into a market and offer that to their already existing customer base. So we've got a lot of overlap in that space too. So is that because if I'm a franchise partner or an owner in one market and I own one of your portfolio brands, I know what the infrastructure is like. I'm growing with that infrastructure and to move over and acquire another brand, I'm kind of comfortable already with that existing infrastructure. I can just apply it to a new business that I pick up and sort of adjust to that consumer offering. Is that kind of the, the flow? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we're still working through, obviously we've done a lot of acquisitions in a short amount of time. So there's still some work to be done there, but that's exactly the idea that authority brands is a platform and there are certain things that we do and ways that we run our franchise brands at the corporate level. And so our franchisees, whichever brand it is, know that an authority brand's brand has certain things, tools, resources available to them. And that offering is very similar brand to brand. So if they're, if they like what they're getting in the brand that they own, it's a great opportunity for them to, to own another. And we always try to, to make it financially an incentive for them to do so, because it helps us grow as well to have more dots on the map, more open locations gives our advertising a little bit more of a push behind it when there's more people doing it, all of those good things. Makes sense, makes sense. I mean, as a technology company, we always are trying to find efficiencies and scale by automation and having progressive technology to automate the things that should be automated. You know, in that vein, you mentioned the word platform as it applies to authority brands. What, what are the types of technologies do you sort of place importance in, in terms of realizing the multi-brand portfolio touch. I mean, you can't have tons and tons of partners doing similar things because it's going to be chaotic. How do you sort of streamline it? And what are the types of technologies that you look at kind of across that to make sure that you're offering that platform for a new owner that maybe comes into the organization? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, especially because when you for people who have been in franchising for a little while, the model for a long time, especially in marketing was, we're going to give you a couple options of people you can use for certain services. Here's three choices for who can run your website. And here's three choices for who you can hire for reputation management. Here's three choices for who can run direct mail for you or whatever media purchasing it is, right? And our approach has been almost the complete opposite of that in that we've approached and seen 
such value and being able to create a consistent platform, you know, market by market, location by location, that not only benefits the consumer because we can create this kind of customer journey across all of our franchise locations of a given brand that's the same. So working with any one of our brands is relatively similar, but also has it actually creates the ability for us to execute and deliver at a higher level from a marketing perspective. So instead of just coaching, you know, hey, here's what you need to go do in your market, we can actually just do it. We will just do it for you. So a franchisee doesn't have to spend so much time thinking about the marketing that's running in their area. Is their phone ringing? Are they getting enough customers? And we've built kind of the tech around it to automate a lot of that on their behalf. And that lets us execute at scale across all these locations. And, and all of that really just creates value for the franchisee, whether they decide that that value means that they open another one of our locations and continue to operate, or even when they're ready to be done being a franchisee and they are ready to retire and they want to sell to someone new, their business has value that we've been able to help them create because we haven't given them, you know, three options in every area. We've streamlined the kind of the CRM technology that they're all using. We've streamlined all the digital marketing technology, the website infrastructure. It's all one thing. And there's a lot of value to be had from that. We agree. So you're doing it on behalf of the franchise partners. You're running marketing in-house. Yeah, in-house in that we're executing it using the, the team here, but we leverage partners. But again, one partner basically per channel to help us execute so that we're not taking on kind of the intellectual burden of being 100% up to speed on everything that's changing, especially when we think about digital, you know? So our team here is, is working with, you know, those third parties and monitoring, tracking, reporting, holding them accountable, looking at KPIs, managing budgets, all of that. But they're not the ones building campaigns, pulling all of those triggers, because from our perspective, there's just so much more value in being able to leverage partners who have bigger teams, who have expertise in certain areas because they live and breathe it every day that we just don't have. You know, we have to be a little bit more of generalists on our side because for the size of top line revenue that we do, we do not have the corporate budgets that support having huge marketing teams. So for, you know, to give that some perspective for a team of, I should say for 10 brands on the consumer side, we've got about 24 consumer facing people on the marketing team. So there's not a lot of, and we've decided to kind of strategically keep people dedicated to a brand instead of trying to create like a expertise in-house and run as an agency, we've chosen to run brand dedicated so that the brand infrastructure knows that they've got dedicated people. Brand operations knows they've got two people who are their marketing team. Franchise owners know they've got two people who are their marketing team that they can call and they don't have to figure out like, okay, on this list of 20, who's my person? Who can help me with this? And it's a different person than who can help me with, you know, whatever came up yesterday or the week before. So, so Makes that's sense. we've had, yeah. So the, so the franchise partners, when they have questions about their marketing, they call your internal team for the first line of defense, so to speak. And then your internal team are communicating with your marketing partners behind the scenes, getting all the information. So your franchise partners really know who that person is for their particular brand. They can reach out to them, get their questions answered, and then go on to operate their business, which is the most important thing for them. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when we think about 
things that to your point about scaling and leveraging technology, right? When we think about the things that we can't scale, like what can we absolutely not use technology for, right? It's the actual operations of physically cleaning a house, right? I mean, we've got like Roomba and all of those like tech vacuuming solutions, right? But the actual work execution is all done by people. And we don't see that changing anytime soon, right? You're, you're always gonna have a plumber come out and do work in your home. If someone's cleaning your house, it's a physical person who's coming to do it. So that's the piece where we really rely on our franchise owners. They have to have the operational expertise. They have to you know, guarantee service delivery. That's the piece that's on them to own. Everything else we do our best to automate, to use technology, to create systems, to make it very easy for them to run a business. Spend time on the most important things, your customers, less time on the things that your team can handle to make them more efficient and grow their own business versus focusing on what's the latest targeting strategy in social media. Exactly. The last thing we want is to have our franchise owners feel like they have to be digital marketing experts or direct mail experts or website, you know, analytics gurus, right? We want to give them enough information so that they feel like they're seeing the full picture of what's happening with their marketing spend. Um, and they can see performance and how that spend is generating customers and revenue in their market. But in my experience, once people start to get really in the weeds, it's really more of a function of not having the right data points, right? If you can see what your spend is doing and the revenue it's generating, most franchisees are happy with that. They don't want to get in the weeds. They don't want to worry about it. And for those who do, they can. You know, we'll give we'll give as much information as people want to see. We'll get on the phone and and go layer by layer through, you know, reporting and analytics and all that. But for the most part, most franchise owners just want the phone to ring. They want business to come in the door. They don't want to worry about the nuances of how it got there. Yeah, I, th I think it's smart. You know, there's kind of two models that we see with multi-location brands and primarily franchise brands is the previous model, which was we have our two or three or four partners around different disciplines. Let's um, bring them into the company and give franchisees a choice to decide who they want, but they have to work directly. Corporate will kind of supervise that and manage it, make sure things are brand standard, but they also can go out and do their thing. And then the one that we, we were seeing more emerging, it sounds like you got to it earlier than most, is the in-housing, which is figuring out the technologies and the partnerships that can empower a small team to scale to thousands of locations. And so we, we see that in our business as a growing trend of people just in-housing. It's a smart strategy, especially as you are growing and now have 10 brands and I'm sure you're on a growth path to do more. You need that infrastructure in place to be able to scale efficiencies and sort of get the most of every dollar spent of every working media dollar. So that, that's great to hear, Heather. Let me ask you a question around sort of authority brands in general. like. You know, I think one of the times we were talking, you have all these brands that consumers really need. They just may forget about it. It's maybe like a last minute thing that they have to do. Like I need a plumber in my house or I need my air conditioning fixed. You have all these really valuable services for consumers. And I'm sure there's some sort of consumer choice between the plumber down the street that they know or your brand portfolio. And so what are the ways that you are sort of using the power of the platform, the power of all the portfolios to promote 
other brands because you're you're all in the home, right? And there's a lots of different services that people are getting. I know, and I know from my own personal experience, it's really hard to get a plumber when you want to get a plumber. It takes two months for sometimes, or you want to get your air conditioning fixed. It may take six weeks. So good for your business, that's great. But for consumers, it's sometimes you wait six weeks and then maybe they don't show up or they reschedule it. So there's some frustration in the marketplace. Sounds like you have an opportunity to help change that with the introduction of other brands in your portfolio. I'd love to hear how you're thinking about that. Yeah, I will say maybe just to back up for a second, you definitely hit on the biggest issue in this space is the fact that not a lot of people are going into trades. There's not a lot of people becoming plumbers. There's not a lot of people becoming electricians. That's why there's so much kind of pent up consumer demand when there is an issue. There's just not a lot of people who are performing these services anymore. And that's- Labor shortage. Yeah, there's a massive labor shortage. And that's the thing that I wish, you know, and Mike Rowe has done a great job of trying to shine a light on that. A lot of people have tried to call attention to the fact that you can make a tremendous amount of money as a skilled tradesperson, plumber, electrician, HVAC tech, like there's tons to be made, not even talking about if you're a franchise owner. Right, but just if you're even working for a franchise in this space. So part of the issue that's going to be facing any business in this space, not just ours, is the fact that, you know, I think the average age of a plumber is in their late 50s at this point. Average. So there's going to be there's going to be an issue for sure in the next five to 10 years. And so the more that we can encourage people that college is a great path, but there it's not the only path. There are other ways to go about building a stable, strong, and a long career. And that's the trade. That, that makes sense. I mean, so is the reason because the every time I will call someone specifically on the plumbing side, they're booked for three months. Is it's because of that particular point. I didn't think of that. That's that's uh yeah, it's absolutely, interesting. It's absolutely a labor issue. And if you can imagine what it's like when there's a weather event. So, you know, Texas, after all of the snow and everything that was completely unprecedented, I'm sure most companies in Texas, not even speaking about ours specifically, um, because I just don't know offhand, but I am positive that there are tons of, of plumbing companies in Texas lists of people that they need to get back to once they've got some capacity. And so part of what we're trying to do on our side is leverage technology to be efficient so that we can maximize time because time is the resource that we need to try and stretch for you know the people who are executing this work so so much of what our focus has been has been around building efficient systems that route well that assign the right people based on skill set to show up at a given job so that the person who shows up can do it right then and not you know diagnose and then have to call in someone else to come back the next day to perform the work so that's really something that we've tried to focus on is just using tech to really build the most efficient routes and route scheduling so that we can do as much work as possible in a day. But then I think the other thing is that there's still really just in general, a lack of what I would kind of consider commonplace technology in the trades. So for example, most people are used to being able to get text confirmations from their dentist, that they have a dentist appointment. Text back, yes, that you confirm that you're coming in for your teeth cleaning tomorrow. That's pretty common. And there's a lot of sectors where things like that 
exist. The trades are a little slower on that front. And I think, you know, the things that we're doing and that we've done aren't necessarily revolutionary by digital transformation strategy standards, but we're talking about spaces that haven't really been transformed in 60 years. So, so really a lot of what our focus is, is making our brands more accessible and easier for people to work with. So you don't have to pick up the phone and call and talk to someone and explain your plumbing problem and then work with them to get on the schedule. You can go online, book a service, and someone will text you that they're coming and then show up, right? So things that are pretty common other places, that's our big focus now is completely digitizing the experience for people who choose that that's the path they want to take to work with us. Interesting. I mean, as you're talking, Heather, I can't help not to think about what Uber did to a age old business in taxis. They've been at the problem now for at least 11 years. I think they were started in 2009, but remember there was no efficient like routing way to place drivers and passengers together around a route and guarantee pretty much a, a price and a time at that point, right? Today, it's sort of pretty commonplace with Lyft and everyone else. And they've been at it such a long time, but at the time, if you think about it, and I lived in New York city for 16, 17 years. Your, your way to get a car, you could call 6666666 Carmel, I believe it was called. I still remember the commercials and see if you can get through. But the most efficient way was to walk outside and put up your hand and get a cab, right? And that all changes the evolution of technology and mobile phones, really the iPhone, which I think came out in 07. So this is perfect being founded a couple of years later. They really found an efficient way to route Consumers give them a fixed price. And now, as you know, that, that story is pretty well written. I can't help but think about you sort of are trying to take an industry that hasn't been revolutionized or progressive in terms of making it more efficient until now. I think all the technology in the world can really help with that. But also at the same time, you've got a second issue, which is the, the labor shortage. What are the things that are happening in terms of like, to expand the labor tool? Where do you see that evolution going? Yeah, it's, it's tough. I don't know that I can necessarily say that there's anything specifically that's working. I know from our perspective, from my perspective, getting trades back in schools is a huge push to try and help with that. But now that no one's in schools anymore, there that idea goes, right? So we're now dealing with a completely different education and environment anyway. I will say, I don't know if it made your COVID binge watching list early COVID, but CBS put out a, a new show called Tough as Nails. If you've seen that, the whole premise is that they take people from various industries. So plumbing, drywall, construction, all kinds of things. And they're doing these like competitions that showcase their strength to, you know, the typical game show, right? Win some money at the end of it. But I think even things like that, just giving a platform and some visibility in to what working in some of these spaces looks like, you know, not just what people think it's like, but like what it actually is is hugely valuable. And I wish there was a easier, cleaner way to try and get schools to add back some of that programming, because the reality is if kids are never exposed to it, they're never going to make the choice that they should go to a trade school versus, you know, some other path that might present itself. But, you know, I don't know that I've seen anything work 10 years ago when this kind of first became a topic for me, 
I was working on a project at Neighborly at the time, which is another home service platform, the one that I came from before. And they were trying to promote women, women getting into the trades. And we had a scholarship program there and we couldn't get enough applicants to even execute all of the scholarships. Wow. So it's a very big problem. I will say one thing that some regional players are doing that I think is interesting. It's just, it gets tough in franchising. There's a, a player up here in Maryland who basically created a trade school and you go, you don't pay for anything. It's free. You earn your different licenses and then you work for them for a certain amount of time, or you pay back the cost of the school. But the thing that's hard when it comes to franchising is this whole idea of joint employer. And we can't be as a corporate brand, we have to have a pretty clear separation between us and the employees of a franchise. So there needs to be no confusion to the employees of the franchisee. You know, they need to understand they work for the franchise owner in a location who's operating under our name versus thinking that they work for us corporately. And there's been all kinds of back and forth legislation on that over the years, but that's part of the reason why it becomes difficult for us to try and explore getting into that space. Because if there was some flexibility there, my guess is there are a lot of us large players that would be you know, more aggressively trying to do something like that in market, you know, all over the United States. It's just right now, it's not legally feasible that people would pursue that at a corporate brand level. Understood. Thanks for shedding some light into the kind of nuances of, of how to tackle that issue. Home services is definitely a category that is unique in itself. And I'm wondering, how did you get into it? Like, how did you get into it? I mean, because you, you've now, you know, been at your current company, Authority Brands for a number of years. Before that, you were in home services at Neighborly. What drew you to the space? Okay, so I'm going to give you a like straight up honest answer, because it's actually kind of funny. And I think it's actually kind of interesting for people who are coming out of college now in the midst of a pandemic. I finished undergrad in 2008, which was a very difficult time to get a job, especially in marketing. I remember specifically, I went to an interview at the time in Houston, I was in Texas at Continental Airlines, and I was super excited. Um, it was right before they merged with United. And when I was sitting outside to go in, the gentleman who came out before me was probably in his early fifties. And I just remember thinking like, there is zero way I'm going to get this job. Like there is no way. So to make a long story short, I ended up going back to grad school. I got my MBA. I figured it was a great time to be out of the job market. I wasn't exactly passing up some, you know, great starting year, first year salary in marketing. And I was at Baylor and neighborly at the time was based in Waco. And um, so they were right in my backyard and they had been recruiting kind of for the first time MBA grads. And I didn't know anything about restoration, which was the first home service space I went to work in, but I was excited about it. I was, you know, willing to learn, ready to go. And they offered me a job and I had massive anxiety that I wasn't going to get a job anywhere else because of how tight the market had been before. And I said, you know what, this could be cool. I don't know much about franchising. I don't know anything really about home services. Let's give it a go and see what happens. And I loved it. Like day one out the gate, I loved the people that worked in that brand. 
And I had such a blast learning from all these franchisees. I really loved the franchisee dynamic in that, you know, they were so passionate about what they were doing. They had all these ideas, you know, out the gate, I realized like, if I want to be successful, I just need to understand how the franchisees make money. I need to understand the unit level economics of how one franchisee in one market becomes more successful. And then I need to focus on the drivers of that. And it, it worked very well. Um, obviously I'm still in franchising 11 years later, so I guess it worked, but it was sheer dumb luck that I ended up in this space. There was no like master plan to be in home services, no master plan to be in franchising, but I really liked the people and have continued to like the people in franchising. It's been a fun ride. So now I'm, I'm you know, home services seems to be the path. So I'll be, I'll be sticking around for a while. That's awesome. And do you remember where you found the interview? Was it a job posted online? Um, so I actually went through, because I was physically in Waco, I had a connection at the business school who was friends with the CEO of the Dwyer group. And he had basically networked in like, Hey, can we try to connect our graduates with some of the open roles you had? And so Uh, it was a networked in kind of connection. Yeah. So, you know, that's a good segue because we want to talk a little bit about students coming out of college in a year that no one ever thought with school looking very differently, jobs looking very differently. So we've talked to guests prior in the podcast about how they found their first job and what advice they would give to students coming out, because some people have no idea where to look, what to do. You know, some are are more advanced than others as it relates to their social networking capabilities or just their, you know, networking capabilities in general. Sounds like here, it was a networked opportunity locally for you. Is that kind of the way it happened? And then what what advice would you give using your own experience to students that might be listening to this podcast in terms of how they're thinking about finding their first opportunity? Yeah. So the first piece of advice that I hope if one person takes this to heart, it will like make my ear. Just because you don't land where you think you're going to land the day after you graduate does not mean that you are a failure. I moved back in with my parents. Like I had a degree. I moved in with my parents. I worked retail to save money, to go back to grad school, to try and change the cards that I'd been dealt because it's really tough to get an entry-level marketing job in the midst of an economic collapse because everyone is more qualified than you. Everyone has more experience than you. And suddenly they're willing to work for significantly less money. The entry-level rung of you know college grads is just pushed out of the space. So first, just because you don't land where you want to land does not mean you won't get there. It just means that, you know, you're used to going grade to grade to grade to college, to college, to college, right? And it's just not a clear path anymore. In other words, just to stuff there for a second. In other words, just, just take the first opportunity for experience. It may not be what you thought you were going to do, but if something presents itself, take it to learn. Yeah. Don't be afraid. Like, don't be afraid that if you get something or have an opportunity that's not exactly what you want, don't look at it as you're committed for the next 10 years to something. I thought going into this restoration job, I was like, okay, I could do this for two or three years and then the market will be different and I'll figure it out. And it turned into a career and a great one for me. So all of that to say, like, don't stress, make the best choices you can, make smart choices about what you're doing and more opportunities will present themselves. We're not going to be in a crisis for 
ever, right? It will end. It feels like it's going on forever, but it will end. And then, you know, I ended up here at Authority Brands because of a LinkedIn post. So I had been, you know, it's, it's hard to network in industry when you're still working, right? Because you can't necessarily tell people that you're looking to change or doing things like that with like your normal kind of colleagues that you would network with about other things related to work, right? So I had found this job on LinkedIn and I decided like I would move anywhere. I will move anywhere in the country. I don't know anything about Maryland, but let's give it a shot, right? So I applied through LinkedIn and they called me and and basically said like, you do know that this is Maryland, right? Like you can't just work from Texas. I was like, nope, I'm ready, let's go. And that was just sheer dumb luck that they were looking, I was what they were looking for in terms of having experience in franchising and home services. They thought they hit the jackpot because I had been at this company that did what they wanted to do. And I thought I hit the jackpot because it wasn't a startup brand had been around for 20 years, but they had a startup mentality about how they treated every day. It was fast paced. There was very little red tape. We were doing cool stuff. It felt exciting. You could kind of feel the feel the fun in the air. I was like, this is going to be great. But that was LinkedIn. Like I didn't know anyone at this brand. I didn't know anyone really. I knew one person in Maryland and that was a franchisee from my existing brand that I was with. That's it. So, I mean, you definitely can do it on LinkedIn too. I will say that that was a different, the market was different then. It wasn't quite the crackdown that OA was in terms of job opportunities, but, you know, opportunity is everywhere. And sometimes there's not rhyme or reason to who looks at what, or they could have very easily looked at my resume and said, like, she's not in Maryland, we're going to throw it away, but they didn't. And you went there as a director of marketing, got promoted to vice president of marketing, and then CMO of Authority Brands looks like maybe three or four years into that job. So it led to something that even got grander and bigger than you probably thought when you first saw the post on LinkedIn, right? I mean, I thought I was leaving, you know, eight brands to go to one brand and I was just going to like rock star this one brand. Like we're going to, it's going to be great. My pace of life is going to get better. Work-life balance is going to be awesome. And, you know, what I pretty quickly realized was I need to have a lot going on to feel like we're doing good stuff. Like there's a lot happening. Like I like that pace. So, you know, pretty quickly I realized like, oh, this is going to turn into that. This is going to turn into that. It was kind of like the calm before the storm. And I've been very, very lucky in that this is a place. And even with my team now that really values kind of mentoring people and growing people into the roles that they want or the roles that they're capable of over time. And I'm very, very grateful that this was a promote from within kind of culture. And I got the opportunity to grow with the company and grow in to being a CMO. It's been fantastic. And I would have never guessed when I took my first job in restoration in franchising 10 and a half years ago that I'd be sitting here having this conversation about home service franchising. But again, you know, things happen in, in strange ways sometimes. Yeah. There, you know, what I've learned a lot in business and also as a founder, there is no rules. There is no playbook. You have to kind of go where the road takes you and do everything you can to 
make that road look as polished and awesome as it could because it's going to take you somewhere that maybe you didn't expect and roll with it. Maryland, Baltimore. So I grew up there before I was 10, but Reicherstown and then grew up in the Bethesda, Rockville, Potomac area before uh, moving to New York. But how indoctrinated are you in the crab cake culture? I'm assuming you've had them and I will find out how well you know Baltimore by the next question of where you go and what's your favorite place to eat and what's your favorite accoutrement to a crab cake <laughs> or appetizer to a crab cake, I would say. So my favorite crab cake is GM. Okay. And so for everyone listening who maybe hasn't had a Maryland crab cake, the signature of a Maryland crab cake is a lot of jumbo lump crab, like very little filler. They're not breaded and fried. They are just a giant mountain of crabs. So GNM is my favorite. The interesting thing about GNM is that, um, assuming most people listening haven't been there, it is visually a little outdated, we could say. It's in rough shape, but it's banging food. The food is so good. It's like you can't can't even hold it against them. You know, it's it's like you can roll up in there in like your shorts and a t-shirt and have the best crab cake. So yeah, so I'm a GNM kind of girl. That was the first crab cake I had when I came to Maryland. So it's a little sentimental. I took my parents there when I moved up here. Fantastic. Are you a crab soup connoisseur? I do like crab soup. I like <laughs> personally the mix half and half. I like half the cream of crab, half the crab with tomato. I don't remember which one is she crab and which one is the other, but I like a half and half, um, which is also a Maryland thing to like mix the two. That is true. I don't know if it's still there. I think they're actually closed, but the place that unfortunately, the place that I kind of grew up on is called CJ's Crab House and Grill. That was like the big place. It looks unfortunately like they're gone in Owings Mills, but always a fan and very hard to get crab cakes outside of Baltimore or outside of Maryland. A few exceptions, but the question you ask, the hat that you ask the waiter or the waitress is, how much of the crab cake is breaded? How much of it is crab? And if they say, oh, it's, it, there's, it's kind of equal, then you know it's not good. So ask that question and you, you'll get the hack to understand if you have a good crab cake, but they're amazing. And then do you have, I'll get off the subject, I promise. <laughs> what about actual crab, like just crabs in general? Yeah, I'm okay. all about it. I did my first. So I've had crabs multiple times since living in Maryland. I've gone out for crabs to like a dock, like at a restaurant to stay yeah. crabs for like two hours. But I went to my first, this past year, I went to my first crab shack, like in the middle of nowhere, this restaurant, like nothing around it out by like in the Salisbury area and sat for like three and a half hours while people picked crab. And like, I'm a, I'm a slow mover. I'm getting better. I'm getting much better. I have my own technique now, which I've discovered is like a thing. People have their different techniques. Mm-hmm system, but it is quite, quite the experience and a messy experience too. bring a lot of like wet wipes oh, yeah. blast. It's a blast. I got a ticket one time in Salisbury going to ocean city, but that's another story. <laughs> um, so you, so you've adjusted to the culinary experience of seafood in Baltimore. That's fantastic. Tell us a little bit about, have you developed any new hobbies, any new habits, good, bad, or indifferent during the last year? You know, I will say probably the 
biggest change is that I never really was a podcast listener, like aggressively. And once COVID started, I started doing a lot of outdoor, like running and walking. And like, to the point where I was like clocking like a hundred and change miles in a month. And I would listen to podcasts the whole time. Um, and so that's something that um, has changed in my world that will never change back. Now I'm like obsessed. All I want to listen to are podcasts. And now like phase, I guess, five of, of quarantine lockdown, because Maryland has been virtually locked down the entire time. I am really into clubhouse. So I am, for those who don't know, clubhouse is this app. It's relatively new. It's iPhone only invite only. And it literally is like joining a live podcast. So you pop in a room, people are talking, there's no, you can't see anybody. You can just hear and listen. And um, you stumble into some really cool conversations. I listened to Perez Hilton talk about Kim and Kanye's divorce the other night, which was cool. I listened to the guy who founded HSN talk about the miracle mop and huggable hangers on Saturday morning. There's so much cool content that's happening like in real time. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> We're doing a talk on Friday on Clubhouse. So we're going to try it out. It's been interesting uh, the way they've integrated the platform and you get you get a lot of followers pretty quickly. Uh, I think that it's the way that they sign up and invite people when you become a new member. But definitely an interesting marketing vehicle. We're experimenting with that in terms of you know how to attract people that would be interested in, in what you do. So uh, I agree. It's a pretty pretty cool platform. Tell us a little bit about your your own sort of podcast habits. So I got into podcasts too. I share that with you, you know, either in the drive time or running or doing something or working out. What are the podcasts you like the best or what are the genres of podcasts that you like the best for our listeners? Besides this one, of course. <laughs> of course, of course. My like original favorite podcast, like the one that got me into podcasts. So special place in my heart podcast um, is called You're Wrong About, which the format basically is, Two people get on to have a chat. One has done a ton of research on something that's commonly misremembered from you know history, whether it's like the mid nineties or even the last few years. And the other one shows up with only what they know, only what they've heard from media, only what they remember from it happening. So that's a great podcast in terms of format and topic. It's really interesting. But now, you know, I think like a lot of people, I've taken the deep dive into true crime and it's like I've opened Pandora's box and I cannot get out. And it's like Dateline and all of these other podcasts, you know, John Benet Ramsey case, so many that just take me down the rabbit hole of crazy true crime stories. So are you, are you consuming as much podcast as you are traditional Netflix or TV or broadcast TV? Are you listening more audio now than you are kind of video? I think I'm probably just taking in more content now than I was before, because I'm still like my evenings, my relaxing time, depending on what I'm doing. Like I'm much more likely to be listening to a podcast to your point, driving, working out, walking, or even like cooking or doing something like that, where I don't feel like I have to be like kind of turning my head to look, but evenings like to decompress. Yeah, it's still Netflix. It's still. So are you a music person? Like what's your thing in the, oh, on the music side? I'm a huge, the biggest pain point for me, COVID, is that I normally go to 
maybe 10 or so live shows a year. In fact, the weekend before all of this happened last year, like the weekend of like March 6th or 7th or so, I flew to Houston to go see the Eagles in concert, which was the last concert I got to see before COVID. So I had like tickets to 10 or 12 shows booked out over the next year that all just fell apart. So, so yes, that's been the biggest change for me. I'm a huge, huge music fan, but mostly in kind of like the classic rock category. So, you know, the Eagles, the Rolling Stones, I saw pre-COVID Aerosmith is my favorite hands down. Um, but I also like, you know, Green Day, George Ezra, I would love to see. Saw the Lumineers last year. They were great. So a little, a, a lot of classic rock, a little bit of like, I don't know if you want to call it classic rock folk kind of music, but, but yeah, that's, that's kind of my sweet spot. Anyone today that you like this current? So here's the problem, full, full transparency, because I'm listening to so many podcasts and because early COVID, like kind of new music just kind of hit the brakes. Yeah. Most of the new music or most of the music I'm hearing, oddly enough, is coming through TikTok, which I think will be a game changer long-term. So I think TikTok on the music front is going to do a tremendous amount for people launching careers that don't have access to or don't have the resources to get to the standard distribution channel, if you will. So I think that industry is going to completely implode on itself. Again, there's been a lot of change in music over the last you know, two decades, but that's what I've noticed is that most of what I'm picking up that I haven't heard before is because it's coming over and over through people using it on TikTok and people using the same type of content or the same type of underlying track on TikTok for their content. Yeah, yeah, the social experience of music is certainly a way that people are discovering a lot more. Spotify just released a feature, I think, in beta where you could listen to your playlist live with whoever you invite. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's just yeah. kind of a sh shared listening experience. So I agree, like musical experiences you know, are now morphing into either social platforms, virtual platforms, et cetera. And I'm a, you know, I go to a lot of concerts as well, and I've certainly missed that. Uh, but I've noticed that they are being scheduled now more like in the fall of this year. So it looks like there are big dates coming in September, August of big names that are starting to book, which is encouraging. Anybody good? Anybody I should get excited about? Mariah Carey? Um, no, just kidding. Um, I get a lot on my feed because I have young girls <laughs> who like her and uh, I think she's awesome too. But I think I saw like the Doobie Brothers, the... Oh, yeah. Kiss, like a lot of old classic rock, and but I'm I'm assuming it's going to sort of pretty be robust as uh, people kind of get clearance to do shows and more people are vaccinated, which we'll be excited to see. Got a few minutes left. I'll just ask you a few quick sort of rapid fire questions to kind of close things out and uh, let you get into your next Zoom, I'm sure. Next next video call. Hopefully uh, this is, might, might be a little bit more exciting. I will uh, ask you some questions and then the, you see where it goes unscripted. So first thing is best meal ever. Oh, prime steakhouse at the Bellagio Las Vegas. I think I've been there. That's fantastic. Favorite drink. My favorite drink, let's see, uh, non-alcoholic Coke Zero, alcoholic and old-fashioned. Like a love old-fashioned. Mm -hmm. Your favorite state in the U.S. to visit? 
Oh, I'm a Texas girl. Texas will always be my favorite state. Born and raised. So spot in my heart. Favorite reality show? Oh, that is like torture to ask me that question. <laughs> um, currently, Below Deck on Bravo. Heard about it? Seen it playing at our household? <laughs> Haven't watched it, but I've seen it in the household playing. Kim and Kanye. What's the dollar amount that's going to be settled in that breakup? Oh my God. I don't even, I don't even know. I don't have enough. Like the money they're talking about is on a level where like, I can't even pull something out of the sky because I don't even know the context. I think the divorce is a screen for bankruptcy for him to get assets into her name. Interesting. That's what I'll say about that. Interesting. Favorite technology that you use for your own personal life? Ooh. So new favorite, like hack that I discovered. So it's not necessarily like a full on piece of technology in the new iOS update for iPhone, or at least I should say the newest one that I did, which is probably not the newest one. I have a shortcut now on my phone to give me directions home. So I don't have to ever type in my address or anything like that. I click the button, directions home, boom, directions home. I love it. I'm obsessed. Love that. I'll, I'll tell you my favorite. Have you ever turned off notifications in your settings? Yes, I have. Do <laughs> you live a no notification life? I just started to, yeah. I turned off, so hack from like five years ago, six years ago, I turned off all social notifications. So Facebook, Instagram, any of that, I turned all of that off so that I was seeking out when I wanted to be plugged into those platforms, but I have not turned off all notifications. So maybe I'll give that one a go and see how, see how I feel. I are you, okay, question for you. Are you a phone has a lot of the red dots? Are you a no red dot notification on your apps person? When you say red dots, you mean like the the thing that tells you you have a notification on it? Yeah, like does your email red dot say seven thousand or like do you? Some people are dot clearing, crazy people. <laughs> no, I just let it flow. Um, I you know I, I still have. I mean, I just let it flow. It's like an avalanche, um, and uh, there's always notifications. But I noticed that um, like LinkedIn and some of the other technology platforms are increasing their notifications that aren't as relevant to me. They're just like, this is a notification, and it might have something to do with something I've, I've clicked on, but it's not necessarily the notification that I want. Um, so it got a little bit too much, and um, instead of just uh, doing it by app, I just go into settings and click all. And the biggest change is really the text messaging notifications. You don't see it. So it's like you're living in a silent world, uh, but you go in and check it like on an, like an hourly basis, whatever, and you can go into it, and they're all lined up. But it's, it's much easier to get work done, real quality work, with it all there without that constant ding or vibrate or whatever it might be on your phone. So I, it's pretty cool. You should try it. I mean, it's pretty cool. I mean, it, you know, it just turns everything off and then uh, you're sort of zoning out into really concentrating on what you're doing. I love that. I mean, that's why, you know, I have an Apple watch. I do not wear it anymore because it was too much like, yeah, okay. I could turn off the, the settings for this, but I found myself all day just like, 
being ruled by this piece of tech that was like telling me I hadn't, I hadn't stood up in whatever amount of time. And like, that was bad. And then I hadn't done this and that was bad. And like, zip, somebody wants to talk to me. And I'm like, this is, I can't, like, I need clarity of mind to be able to concentrate on the things I'm doing. And in fact, I told my team too, it was like, if you're going to constantly be looking at your watch while we're having a meeting, you're going to have to leave your watch and your phone outside. Like you cannot be in a meeting with just like, oh yeah, sorry. I just need to, oh yeah, sorry. I just need to like clear your mind, focus for 30 minutes and you can go deal with all of that. If it's a crisis, the phone that's sitting on your desk will ring. Someone will find you. It'll be okay. It'll be all right. Are there any rules on the video experience with your employees or with your team? Like turn it on, turn it off. I mean, you know, is like, how are you feeling that out? Yeah. I mean, that's hard, right? Because I think when, when COVID first started, I was like more so trying to make sure that, because we didn't really know what we were getting into. Right. And I was like, okay, guys, you can't be like working all day, like sitting in bed in your pajamas. Like you need to treat it like it's a work day. But what I found pretty quickly, especially being in our space, being in marketing with as much was constantly changing in the landscape and how busy we were trying to educate franchisees on PPP loans and getting all of our websites updated with content about COVID and swapping out all of our messaging and doing all these things. I was like, okay, we're all going to know when people are working or not for the most part. You know, I try to encourage my team to like for our key department meetings to have their camera on. Um, but, you know, I've got people at home with a couple kids, a working spouse, not a necessarily dedicated office because they didn't ever necessarily need it before. Right. So I think from my perspective, whatever, whatever someone needs to do, like, this is not the time where I'm going to have like some crazy policy about it. I like to see people a certain amount of the day, but I also know that it is fatiguing to stare at a dot for, you know, six hours, eight hours a day. So, you know, I try to pick the ones that they know where I want us all to kind of see each other and collaborate. And outside of that, it's just whatever they need to do to get it done. Cause there's a lot of family life balancing that's happening. And I think, you know, I think we're all learning that sometimes it's good to be flexible about what people, you know, are required to do in that space. I agree. The last thing I'll say is uh, we talked a lot about technology and for your own personal use, and then also streamlining it within your business. Any advice for marketers about technology and and how to manage it, right? Because to your point, you can't let technology sort of like take you away into a notification land where you can't get anything done, but it should be there to do the things that free up people to do more high value tasks. So would you kind of in closing Darwinian time survival, the nimbleness is the name of our podcast. And it's really meant to see what are the things that you've done kind of during this past year to survive and thrive and grow. And so the last thing I'll just ask you is what's your advice for other marketers around the role of technology in digital marketing specifically and how your teams interact with that? Yeah, I think the best way to leverage technology in marketing is in ways that make things less manual and make smarter use of data. So when I think about all of the time that we used to spend five, eight years ago, having someone create a report and then having a meeting to review a report that's a month old, 
right? Like the data is already two weeks old by the time we have the conversation. And then we're saying, okay, here's five or six things we want to change. And then someone manually making those changes to whatever campaign we're running. And so the process to go from insight to adapting and execution was a long, it wasn't quick. Like we weren't seeing things and making on the fly changes. And sometimes we were, but it wasn't easy or easily scalable. So I think from a technology perspective, you know, what is most useful for us is where we can put technology and automation into processes that used to require a lot of time and used to require a certain amount of insight versus, you know, being able to create a system or tech that says like, I hate to jump back to notifications, but like ping, something's wrong or this is spending wrong. This doesn't look right. You're not hitting a KPI. Someone needs to put manual eyes on it now because the algorithm that's running the spend, you know, something's wonky. And, you know, during COVID that could be that just people, people's behavior changed. People did things differently online. People searched things they never searched before about essential services, right? Or about does XYZ kill COVID? Nobody had ever looked up anything like that before, at least, at least not of any significance. So, so to me, that's the biggest thing you can do is think about what exists in your process today and where can technology help you scale and be leveraged to make your team more efficient and give your team more time to do other things. Um, but especially in the areas of, of data reporting and analysis, I think that's probably the biggest one. There are ways to save time, get better results, being nimble. And nimble teams in multi-location brands and franchising is something we see all the time. So yeah, it's really getting in touch with what can be the new reality to run your business. We enjoyed the conversation, Heather. Thank you for going a little bit over with us and telling us a little bit about not only your journey and sort of how you wound up in your career. I think that was really inspiring for students and folks trying to figure out their next role, that anything can happen at any time. So be tuned into it. And you're, you know, the way that you're um, thinking about the efficiency and portfolio opportunities, you know, where you are today at authority and just how you've done that in the past is really inspiring for our audience to hear. Uh, and then also, of course, sharing about crab cakes and, uh, and music, and we'll have to continue that conversation at some point soon. But really, thanks for participating in uh, Survival of the Nimblest Darwinian Times. We hope to talk to you soon. Heather, it's been awesome to spend some time with you. And hopefully this is a little bit of a cool break in your day. And uh, now you'll go on and uh, do the rest of the day and get back into another video <laughs> session. <laughs> yes, awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is such these are all such great topics and such fun things to, to talk about. So I love a good, I love a good deep dive into marketing tech, home services, all of those fun things. So, so I appreciate it. Thanks, Heather. Uh, we will talk to you soon. Bye all. Thanks all for listening for today's podcast, the Darwinian Times Survival of the Nimblest. If you haven't checked out Ularity, check us out. We are the marketing infrastructure for the internet. We power brands to be able to use paid marketing centrally and distributed through one easy to use paid tool. Check us out at Ularity.com, E-U-L-E-R-I-T-Y.com. And tune in for the next episode of the Darwinium Times. Thanks all.